Well, good morning, everyone. I'd like to welcome you as well to our time together today. And uh, thanks to those of you who have joined us in person and those of you who are joining us online. We're glad that you are able to be with us. And I want to start today by talking about something that I think is one of the greatest experiences of being human. And that is that knowing another person that you like or love loves you. It can put a spring in your step. It can bring comfort knowing that they await you at home. And you can look forward to debriefing at the end of the day or talking through events with them. Such love can keep us going when times get tough. And a person who loves us can give us courage and strength. But then I think one of the worst human experiences is doubting whether a person you love still loves you. If you're in a relationship and you doubt your partner's love, it can drain you emotionally and consume your energy. It can hinder future thinking of dreaming together. It can destabilize your life. And if you are a child and doubt your parents' love, it can lead to lifelong problems or issues. In some ways, what I'll call love-doubt is not surprising in our world. We have live in, or we do live in a fallen world with people who fail, people who sin like we do. And we have to recover from broken trust and broken relationships and actions that may cause, of others that may cause us to question their love. Yet, yet sometimes we might transfer our love doubt onto God. We might look at our lives and conclude, while well, God's Love has come to an end in my life. Or we might look at our experiences with broken love and conclude, well, God loves the same way. God acts just like that. But the good news today is that God offers us a totally different love. God offers us a love that no human can imitate. God's love will never fail and never run out. And when we know such love, when we are certain of God's consistent love and faithfulness, it can give us security and confidence to face whatever we need to face in this life. And today we're going to see such a love offered by Jesus. And the idea of Jesus loving us is not new maybe to many of us we may know the song Jesus loves me this I know that kid's song but we're going to see something different about his love in the passage that we're looking at today and my prayer has been through this week that you will see and experience the deep love that Christ has for you so that you leave today with a greater courage comfort and strength because of a greater certainty of Christ's love for you. So please find John 13 in your Bibles, the Gospel of John, or on your devices. If you're here in person, it's on page 762 in the Bibles we have for you. This is the Apostle John, and he is speaking or telling us about the Last Supper. So John 13, and we're going to read verses 1 to 20. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So the Gospel of John gives us the longest account of the events of the Last Supper. And we find here episodes and teaching that we find in no other gospel. John spends actually five chapters on the Last Supper. And in John 13, verse 1, he introduces us to this. And in verse 1, we find Jesus' heart for us. So again, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knows that his time has come, soon to be arrested, tried, crucified, and killed. And then he will be resurrected and return to the Father. And at the end of verse 1, John talks to us about Jesus' love. He says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. So what is Jesus' heart for us? It is Jesus loved us to the end. 
But what does that mean? To the end of what? Well, it could mean to the end of his life. So a temporal or time-focused love. Or it could refer to the farthest extent of love. So translations like the New International Version will take that approach where it says, or they translate it, he showed them the full extent of his love. He loved us to the uttermost, in other words. He loved us completely. We might even say he loved us to the furthest extremity of love that there is. And Jesus fulfilled both of these possibilities. He loved us to the end of his life, and he also loved us to the uttermost or to the furthest extent. And I think it likely that John aims for the second meaning. So how does Jesus show this love to the uttermost or to the furthest extent? And John begins by describing an event at the Last Supper. Verse 2 tells us that they were already eating and the devil had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So Judas is there. He's still there. And then in verse 3, John reviews what Jesus certainly knew, firmly knew. He knew that his father had given all things into his hands, meaning he would receive supremacy over all things in the universe. And he also knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus is God, and he is being given supremacy over all things in the universe, meaning he will have the highest place in the universe upon his resurrection and ascension. And this perfectly lays out the setting for what he's about to do and the shock value of it. He gets up from the table. He lays aside his outer garments. He gets a towel and a basin of water and begins washing his disciples' feet with the water and wipes them with the towel. So he likely pours the water over their feet and washes their feet with his hands, and then he wipes their feet with the towel. Now, this doesn't mean much for us today because we don't do this, but they lived in a hot, dry climate And they walked everywhere that they went, unless they were wealthy and owned animals. But they walked everywhere and they wore sandals. So their feet inevitably got dirty. And it was common when you went into someone's house, not only to take off your shoes, but for the host to have that possibility of your feet being washed. To enter into the house, you had to have your feet washed. Otherwise, you would walk over someone's house with these filthy feet. Would you want someone to come into your house who maybe had just been working in the garden barefoot or at a construction site wearing sandals and they have filthy feet and then walk all over your house? No. So it was customary for a host to provide foot washing, but also customary for the host to not do the foot washing. They would hire someone else to do that because it was such a low job and it's a dirty job would you want to wash other people's feet at the end of a day of work and there was one more social rule in jewish homes if this was a wealthy family they would maybe have jewish slaves and gentile slaves or non-jewish slaves and washing feet was considered too low of a job for a jewish slave in a jewish home So they would make sure it was a non-Jewish slave to wash the feet. 
because it was beneath the dignity of Jewish slaves. And the disciples who have set up, made arrangements basically for this Last Supper have neglected to look after the foot washing. And in what must have been shocked silence, Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer robes, he wraps this towel around his waist, gets the basin of water, and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet. He's still there. And then Jesus arrives at Peter, who cannot bear this breach of protocol. So he speaks, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? Are you seriously going to wash my feet? And Jesus responds, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you will. And Jesus, or Peter refuses the Lord's offer. He has no category for the Messiah, the one who's going to be the supreme Lord over the entire universe, washing his feet. So he says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And he's doing this out of respect and observing protocol. He believes it's wrong for the supreme Lord of the universe to wash the dirty feet of disciples because in their culture, the high up people never washed anyone else's feet. But Jesus responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Now, this does not mean that the water was somehow magical. Jesus must be speaking about something more here. And to Peter's credit, he immediately trusts Jesus. He wants to be part of Jesus, so he jumps in with both feet. He reverses his position. He exclaims, well, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus explains a little more. He basically says, no, Peter, you don't need your hands and your head done as well. Why? Verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus has just moved beyond talking about water literal water, and he says those who have bathed do not need to bathe again. Well, he can't be talking about literal water because, you know, we need to take multiple baths in our lifetime, hopefully, to, uh, to keep clean. But he's talking about one bath that lasts for the rest of your life. And that must mean some sort of complete cleansing happened. For Jesus calls such a person completely clean. And then addressing Peter and most of the disciples, he says, and you, you plural, are clean, but not every one of you. And John then goes on to explain Judas was the one who wasn't clean. So I agree with, with Pastor John Piper, who argues this must mean that the bath symbolizes Jesus' cleansing work in the lives of those who believe. And when you and I first came to Christ, we were completely cleansed and declared righteous before God. And 11 of the 12 disciples believe in Christ. They were believers. Judas was not. Yet they still needed to have their feet washed, which refers to regular confession of ongoing sin. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, Jesus says, except for his feet. And then Jesus finishes washing everyone's feet. And he gets dressed and takes his seat at the table again, and then he explains his actions. He notes they call him teacher and Lord, and that that is appropriate, but then he says, if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also need to wash one another's feet. So Jesus makes his example of a willingness to engage in humble service a requirement for all 
of his followers. And then he talks about messengers in verse 16 and that we will be blessed if we do this in verse 17. And he predicts Judas' betrayal in verse 18. And then in verses 19 and 20, he again talks about messengers, ending the passage by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he's preparing them to be his messengers to the world. And he's impressing upon them that his messengers, his followers, have to be willing to engage in this humble service to one another and to others. And this is all part of loving them to the end or showing them the full extent of his love. So, how does Jesus love his disciples and us to the end? And the first way is found right in this passage we've just gone through. He loved them and us to the end of social standing or to the lowest end of social standing. He took the role of lowest slave. And even though the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was going back to God, he takes the role of lowest slave. And Jesus loves us in the same way. He joins us in whatever social standing we have, wherever we are at on the social scale, especially at the low end. And Jesus famously displayed love to the poor, the sick, the demon-possessed, the outcasts of society, the sinners, the widows, the women, the children. And he loves us when we are at our worst. So Jesus loves us at whatever place of social standing we are at, whether high or low. But this is not the only way in which Jesus loves us to the end. And I agree with commentators who say that John 13, 1, and he loved them to the end, is not only found in foot washing. In fact, the rest of the gospel is an example of how he loved them to the end. So there's other ways in which he loved his disciples and us to the end. Secondly, he loved to the end of his disciples' loyalty and support. So in verses 21 to 28, we're going to have this episode with Judas and Jesus and Judas talk. And finally, Judas gets up to leave to betray him. So it seems like Judas, Judas' loyalty to Jesus had ended even before the Last Supper. But Jesus' problems with his disciples would not end with Judas' departure when Jesus was arrested, all the other disciples abandoned Jesus. And then Peter denied Jesus three times. So how many of us would keep loving someone who betrayed us, abandoned us, and denied us? And yet Jesus loved them to the end. Third, he loved to the end of the horror called death by crucifixion. So crucifixion, of course, and the cross, we have made, we have memorialized it, we wear it around our necks, and of course it is this symbol of hope, but we must not forget its horror. And the abuse that any crucifixion victim suffered. And the key point is Jesus 
could have gotten out of the crucifixion. When he is being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword, tries to defend Jesus, and in Matthew 26, verses 52 and 53, Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then here's the key phrase, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So if I really didn't want to go through with this, all I have to do is say a word, and the Father will send these thousands of angels to rescue me. Yet he went through the horror of death by crucifixion to the end. But still, that was not the end of his love for us. Another way in which he loved us to the end was when all of our sins were laid upon him. He loved us to the end of all of our sins being laid upon him. Jesus never committed a sin. He never experienced giving in to a sin. He never disobeyed his father. And then God lays our sins on Jesus. And for the first time in his life, he feels sin on him. And it's not just one or two sins, it's all of our sins. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we will never know how that felt. We only know how it feels when our own sins weigh us down. But Jesus had all of our sins laid upon him. And commentators some commentators say this likely felt worse than the physical abuse of the cross and all that led up to it. In fact, one wrote this, though he died on the cross, he may not have died of the cross, but of a broken heart. Yet perhaps worst of all was that he loved us to the end of even being forsaken by his father. You know that cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dean Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, helps us think about this a little bit more. He says, God the Son and God the Father had never been apart or separated for all of eternity prior to this moment. Ortland writes, when communion with God had been Jesus' oxygen, his meat and drink throughout his whole life, without a single moment of interruption by sin, to suddenly bear the unspeakable weight of all of our sins, who could survive that? To lose that depth of communion was to die for Jesus. The great love at the heart of the universe was being torn in two, the world's light was going out. And lest we think Jesus didn't really feel this and was just quoting scripture to fulfill some prophecy, one commentator notes this about Jesus' cry on the cross. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, which in our English Bible says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that in the Gospels, same thing, except Psalm 22, 1 was written in Hebrew. And when Matthew and Mark, quote Jesus' words from the cross, he says them in Aramaic, the common language of the day. So Jesus is not just quoting scripture to fulfill some prophecy, he is personalizing that scripture with the horror of being forsaken by one he's never had a broken fellowship with. 
And he endured his father's forsakenness so we would not have to. And those are just five ways Jesus loved us to the end. Maybe you can think of more. And Ortland then quotes John Bunyan, reflecting on this. He's the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, 1600s. And Bunyan focuses on the uncommonness of this kind of love. He writes, it's common for equals to love and for superiors to be beloved. But for the king of princes, for the son of God, for Jesus Christ, to love man thus, this is amazing. And so much more for Jesus, the object of his love is humankind, so low, so mean, so vile, so undeserving, so inconsiderable as by the scriptures everywhere man is described to be. And Bunyan concludes, love from Christ requires no scene of beauty in the object to be loved. It can act of and from itself without depending on that. The Lord Jesus has set his heart of love upon us to love us to the end, to the furthest extremity of love. So, how might we respond? Well, first of all, you, if you have not already done this, need to put your trust in Jesus who will make you completely clean. When a person believes in Jesus, he is completely cleansed. He is clean before God. Jesus says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And Judas is sitting across the table from Jesus. He was not clean. He'd been around Jesus for we don't know how long. His entire ministry? Yet he did not believe. And, and you might hang around the church... You might be friends with Christians. You might have Christians in your home. You might have grown up in a Christian home. You might have experienced Christian community. But if you have not actually put your trust in Christ, you are not his. So it all starts here. You must put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Do not be like Judas. Second, we need to rest in the knowledge that our future is secure because of Jesus loving us to the end. And I'm talking here about security beyond the grave. Ortland says, if you are his, heaven and relief are coming, for you cannot be unmade his. Our future is secure on the basis of his sacrifice and death. And this is especially comforting when we ourselves face death, or when a loved one who loves Christ faces death. Their future is secure because of his sacrifice and death. And next week we're going to be talking more about Jesus' love for us in eternity, in the next life. Third, we can live in the security that Jesus will never stop loving us. Now, Jesus did not actually wash our feet like he did the disciples, but he provided the means to wash our souls through his sacrifice 
for us on the cross. And if Christ was willing to go the whole way in love for us then, enduring having all of our sins placed upon him and going to the full end of being forsaken by his Father, nothing can threaten his love for us now. He's already loved us to the end so that we can rest and relax in his certain love for the present. And yet that love-doubt creeps in. We begin to think, oh, look at my life. Has Jesus stopped loving me? Is he love me less than he did a few years ago? Or maybe he'll not love me as much at some point in the future. And the text speaks against all of these thoughts. These are Satan's lies and questions that he loves to plant in our thoughts. Doubting, casting doubt on the character of God and the character of Jesus. Jesus has already loved us to love's furthest extremity. Ortland writes, Jesus has no exit strategy from a loving relationship with us. He writes no prenuptial agreement. Another commentator says he loves us to the end of our lives, the end of our sins, the end of our temptations, and the end of our fears. Fourth, receive Jesus' daily foot washings through regular confession of sin. Repeated washing of the feet represents our daily confession of sin and turning to Jesus to receive that cleansing. So, have you integrated into your life the practice of regular daily confession of sin? Of acknowledging and looking back through your day and saying, Oh Lord, I confess I sinned there. I acknowledge that. Or confess our sins to one another. A massive practice of health, spiritual health. Confessing our sins to one another. John 13, 10, again, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Regular confession is an essential part of our Christian walk. And then lastly, we are called to carry out the high calling of representing Jesus by humbly serving one another. Jesus said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. So people need love, and serving people is one way to show them God's love for them. And the church needs to model mutual foot washing, mutual humble service for one another, while also ministering to our community with Christ's servant love. And many of you are already doing this. I think of, of parents of young children. You are thrown into the world of humble service. Parenting comes with some pretty dirty and low jobs, changing diapers, cleaning up messes, attending to sick kids, helping kids in all the ways that they need help, bearing with kids, forgiving them, disciplining them, persevering with them, all thankless, sometimes difficult and draining work, yet absolutely vital in the development and maturing of a child. And I pray that you can see the holy and honored calling that the Lord has placed on you to enter into this humble service for your children. Or raising teenagers or young adults 
who are going through struggles and you enter into that humble service giving up so much of yourself to try to help them navigate those turbulent years. Some of you have cared or are caring for a spouse with medical difficulties. Many of you have cared for one another through illness or you've cared for a loved one with serious illness, arranging for their care, sitting at their bedside, holding their hand, praying for them, giving up your daily life for their care. Many of you are caring for aging parents or relatives. You've made that gut-wrenching transition from when your parents were caregivers for you to you being a caregiver for your parents. And the Lord honors and strengthens those who take up this work. Many of you join in providing meals for families in need in our community or those who are bereaved or those who have had newborn babies. Some of you care for those with special needs or challenges. Some of you have endured difficult moments, hard words, deep frustration. Many of you help others through your profession. I've heard from you. This is why I am doing this work, so I can help others. Many participate in ministries that involve humble service towards others in our church community, like serving coffee after the service. Preparing meals for the greater community. Jesus loved us to the end and set an example for us to follow. So, how do you need to respond today? We started by thinking about the greatest human experience, or one of them knowing that someone you love loves you. Then the hardest human experience of wondering if someone that you love still loves you. And we never have to wonder about that with respect to Jesus. We don't have to stay in doubt about Christ's love. He already loved us to the furthest extremity. And so let us bask in that today. Lord Jesus, we need these reminders of the length of your love. Length of your love. The furthest extremity of love. You went there for us so that we could experience life. So we could be completely clean. So we could walk free from the oppression and weighed downness of our sin. And we can take that lightly, Lord. We can forget. We can look at things around us and conclude, well, Jesus once loved me, but not now. But that's not true, Lord. Help us to battle against the devil's lies and invitations and questions and hang on to this truth. You loved us to the end, and you will continue to do that for the rest of our lives and into eternity. We praise you, we give you glory, and from your love, we ask that you would strengthen us and give us courage. Amen.